KYW Original Podcasts. Hey, everybody. This is Flashpoint host Cherry Gregg. Thanks so much for downloading the podcast. Would you do me a favor when you're done listening? Would you subscribe, rate, and review the podcast? We need your reviews to take us to the top. Thanks. Now let's get to it. This week, we take a look at the reopening of America. States across the country are relaxing stay-at-home orders, but a lot of folks say they're not ready to go out. Reopening is definitely anxiety-inducing. You're trying to shake yourself out of this, and you realize that nothing is working for you. With anxiety levels double that of pre-pandemic times, more trauma to come, how do we cope? We dig in. Then he represents the families of Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor, each gunned down in a racially charged shooting. They let the killers go home, even though there was probable cause. Civil rights attorney Ben Crump explains why national awareness is key to justice. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program. Organ donors save lives. Register today at DonorsOne.org. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. The focus is the reopening of America. Stay-at-home orders have been lifted at least in part in nearly every state in the country. And on Friday, Pennsylvania Governor Tom Wolf moved 13 more counties to the yellow phase of the coronavirus reopening plan. But what if everything opened and no one came? According to a Pew Research poll, 68% of Americans are worried that governors will reopen states before they are ready. The concern is causing mass anxiety. So for Mental Health Awareness Month, we ask, how can you cope? With me to discuss this flashpoint is Dr. Steven Rosenberg. He's a psychotherapist and behavioral specialist practicing here in Philadelphia. We have Dr. Jill Barron, a professor of emergency medicine who is actually a COVID-19 survivor. We also have Brittany Bronson, who has experienced anxiety throughout this pandemic. And finally, we have Isan Hines, CEO and founder of My Brother's Keeper Cares. Everybody, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you. So I want to start with uh, Dr. Rosenberg. States have begun relaxing restrictions and nearly half the counties in Pennsylvania are in the early phases of reopening. But a lot of people are not ready for that. Oh, absolutely. People want to know that they will be safe. They have been quarantined for the past two months. They have stayed in. They have followed all the guidelines. Now they're venturing out. And of course, it is somewhat of a traumatic situation. So they want to know that they are safe. They want to know that things will progress properly for them. So venturing out is going to be a very nervous first step. Are people ready to go back to restaurants? Pretty much, you know, I think they're ready to go out, but to sit with other people may be very cautious laden for them. And I know uh, that you, uh, Brittany, have experienced some of this. Talk about what you have been doing specifically and how you feel about the idea of reopening. Reopening is definitely anxiety-inducing for our families. So in addition to my husband being immunocompromised, we have a set of twins who are also immunocompromised and a son in the Philadelphia Public Schools. For us, we had to make these really optimal decisions for our family, which meant pulling our children out of school before schools ever really closed. Even when we go to the market, my children haven't been anywhere but our front porch for two months. Only myself go to the market. Um, It's just extremely anxiety-inducing because even when I get back in my car, I have to wonder, did I use enough hand sanitizer? Did I do any sort of cross-contamination when I was removing the gloves? It's just really overwhelming to even process. What have been some of the symptoms that you've seen that you're like, oh, my gosh, I'm so nervous? 
tons of like sweating. I definitely get overheated a lot. Uh, my husband actually has to remind me to like close my sunroof now because I constantly need it open to feel like I can breathe when I leave the store. Usually driving to the store, I'm fine. I'll get my stuff. But then when I get back in the car, I'm like, did my mask touch something? Did I touch something with my door handle? Was my key fob clean enough? Should I have sanitized the gloves before I took them off? Just like walking through all of these steps and really calculating and trying to overthink them so that I don't infect my husband or my children. Dr. Jill Barron, you are on the front lines and you got infected with COVID-19. What have you had to deal with as far as stress, anxiety, and just the trauma of all of this? Fortunately, I had uh, a more moderate illness. I wasn't critically ill, and I didn't require ventilation and ICU care, so I'm very thankful for that. Uh, But I was sick for close to a month, and I distinctly remember during that time uh, that I just wanted it to go away. And when it was so persistent, and I woke up every single day with persistent symptoms, uh, I was constantly texting and calling colleagues, asking them, was I going to get worse? Because I was isolated in my house trying to protect uh, my husband, who's also a healthcare worker, and, and my uh, two adult sons who had returned from college to live at home, I was just fearful that I was going to spread it around to people. I, I didn't uh, think that I would be sick so quickly, but I did have, I think, some community exposures as well as hospital exposures early uh, in the month of March. Uh, so it was very frightening to wake up every day and just wish that the symptoms were gone, but um, encounter them uh, for yet another day. I was fatigued. I had shortness of breath. Uh, I became profoundly dehydrated um, and it took about a month for everything to go away. And then that's just one side of it. And then on the other side, you're seeing other people be sick. Coming back to work uh, was very empowering because I felt I had been through something and now my whole goal was really to help other people. Um, I felt uh, that even though there's some suggestion that I may not be completely immune, I did feel that in my acute recovery stage, I was very much less likely to uh, get sick again. Um, but I am watching, uh, you know, many healthcare workers uh, be very, you know, kind of down and feeling very afraid of bringing, not so much for themselves, well, for themselves certainly, but also for their family members. Um, and, you know, returning to the home environment and potentially infecting others. Some of them are caring for elderly parents or have young children or other individuals that are sick. Yeah, that's a heavy weight. And so, Isan, I know you uh you work in high-risk populations. African-Americans have been dying from COVID-19 at much higher rates. And finance is hard for everybody. What have been the topics of discussion, you know, so first of all, explain what it is you do and how the topic of discussion has come up when it comes to COVID-19. I have a um, nonprofit organization for mental health and suicide awareness called My Brother's Keepers Cares. And our most recent platform that we've been using is social media having discussions on Wednesdays about how people are dealing with their mental health during this pandemic. And finances have been an issue. Physical fitness has been a concern. We've been offering solutions and having different panelists come on and talk about how they're dealing with the pandemic, but also offering some type of expertise and some suggestions that other people can can benefit from. And it's just been a good opportunity to share some good news, even in the environment we're in right now. Yeah, and it's become very popular. Why do you think so? Uh, I think because I think God was involved with it, first off, and I just really think that people people were drawn towards their social media constantly. So people are already on the platform, and then they're just finding and they're sifting through things. And our content is about things that are relevant with solutions. So I think once people got a little taste of it, 
Yeah. People were coming back, and they're telling other people about it as well. Dr. Steven, it took a lot to, to get people to go inside. It's almost like you, you, you're told people are dying, this is going to happen, and two months later, they're flipping the switch and saying, okay, we're going to start encouraging people to come back out. Well, how does that impact people? Well, very readily, uh, I have a number of patients that I am talking to, uh, and we're doing a lot of telecommunication, teleconferencing. And uh, I've been talking to uh, dentists. I've been talking to uh, beauticians. I have been talking to uh, a number of people who are out there, and they, they just haven't gone out of their houses. And they don't feel comfortable in even getting back into their work setting. They're uncomfortable with going back to an office setting. And so people need to feel confident that they will be okay. And so, you know, there's also too much looking at the news. The news has a lot of negativity to it and is a sensitization that you need to get from the news and get back to wanting to get out again. So you've behaved, you've stayed in, uh, you've listened to every uh, uh, CDC requirement, you've tried to be good, and now you're venturing out, and it's traumatic. And there's a lot of trauma. There's a lot of actually post-traumatic stress syndrome that's happening out there now. People are afraid to venture out due to the fact that uh, of the unknown. The yeah. fear of the unknown causes tremendous amount of anxiety. Yeah. And that anxiety has to be dealt with. And, and Brittany, when you hear this, what would, what would convince you? What needs to happen? Because... You have an extreme case where you have children and a, and a husband who's dealt with serious medical issues. You guys were already kind of social distancing. What would it take to convince you it's safe? Times more. Um, I, I, we watch the news, so we are guilty of, like, consuming what is in the news. And it worked two ways because before this actually started closing things in Philadelphia. My husband was already very much aware of it and we started social distancing and like buying and all these other things. Um, but, you know, our son's daycare reached out and said like, hey, June 4th, do you anticipate returning? And I said like, no, we probably won't come back until the fall. We're still figuring things out. Yeah. Right. So consuming things from the meat, I know definitely um, it, it worries me, but at the same time, it comforts me because I feel like, okay, at least I'm not completely oblivious to what's happening around me, even if I can't control it. So, Dr. Jill, by far, most people survive COVID-19. So why do you think this pandemic has been so traumatic? And you're, you're one of those people who survive. You are correct. Most people do survive. Uh, the difficulty that we have is that we don't know who those people are going to be with any great certainty. We've heard reports of uh, risk groups, uh, such as the elderly and individuals who reside in skilled nursing facilities or other uh, areas of close quarters. Um, and, of course, you know, the health disparity issue is very real in that it does affect uh, individuals of certain um, ethnicities and races, and, and that's something that we must pay attention to. But in reality, we don't know if any given person is going to get worse, and that's what causes a great deal of anxiety. If we, if we knew if we contracted the disease that we were going to have a mild course, we might feel less anxious about returning to some level of normalcy. But uh, there's still so much we don't know about the disease, and now there's uh, reports emerging around 
uh, children having some life-threatening complications, whereas earlier on, we understood that this disease was much less severe in children. So there's conflicting reports and new data that's emerging. We have to remember that we only have about three to four months of experience with this disease in total, and that's from a medical standpoint, like a fraction of a second. So uh, we really have still quite a bit to learn, and that's quite anxiety-producing. People were told not to wear masks. Then it's like everybody wear masks. Then they were told, well, those are not the symptoms, but then this is a symptom. And so is that part of what you think people on, number one, on the front lines who are trying to diagnose people and choose who gets the test and who doesn't, is that part of the anxiety-producing issue? Absolutely. I think, uh, you know, people respond to very clear, consistent messaging. And when that messaging is convoluted or changes so frequently, uh, you don't know what to believe. And, you know, you're getting information from all different sources, only some of which could actually be credible. So that's a really important thing for um you know, the medical community to be giving very clear and consistent messaging. And my clear and consistent message is one should absolutely wear a mask. That's the best method we have right now for mitigating this disease and preventing spread. I was a, one of the early adopters of the mask. I can tell you that. And so, Good for you. <laughs> yeah. And so, Isan, I mean, when you, so many people are finding you guys online within communities of color, there was a lot of rumors. There was a lot of false information. And that was also anxiety inducing. So what have you been doing to try to, you know, offset that? We've been bringing on some specialists, so bringing on people who could talk about how to deal with your mental health. People from the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention have been helping people with coping so that they don't actually get to those places. We've been bringing on a lot of positive stories, but also we've been bringing on individuals who could speak about wise decisions that people should be making. We were seeing footage of people playing basketball early on in the pandemic and we thought that that wasn't something that we ought to be doing even though we understood the desire to get outside we brought on voices that voices and people who looked and sounded like the, the people who are consuming our content and we had those individuals speak to other people's experiences and people seemed to to respond well to it. It wasn't much controversy at all. Yeah, have you seen the rhetoric shift with regard to uh, following social distancing guidelines? Because a lot of people, especially younger people, ignored it for quite some time. Yeah, they have. And it, uh, we did get through to try to understand why. I believe the numbers came out early saying that young people weren't dying from it. So young people were going out not considering that they could bring it home to their parents and their grandparents. But I think that early on it was just a self a self of centered type of view about how they could be responsible and they were actually being irresponsible with it. Yeah. And so people have sort of shifted there. And so Dr. Rosenberg, according to a recent survey of 5,000 people done by Jefferson, they found that anxiety around the coronavirus is at a level where intervention may be necessary in 40% of the cases. That's double the usual percentage of folks needing intervention. When do you know that intervention may be necessary for you? Well, when you can't cope anymore, when you're just shaking, fearing, you're trying to shake yourself out of this and you realize that nothing is working for you. Sometimes, uh, you know, you need to take a step back and get into a better routine. You need to reach out to others, talk to others, uh, reach out to people and do some good for people. Volunteer, get out and uh, make a difference. And yeah. so you can get rid of this anxiety by just doing more, yeah. feeling good about what you are doing. Accept your feelings. Your feelings are not wrong. That is your feelings, the way you feel. 
So accept those feelings, but try to do something about it. Do something differently. Do something positive. Stay as positive as you can. Reach out to others. Uh, you Just uh, get into a good routine of positive thinking. Maybe even learn yoga, mindfulness training. Uh, get out there and uh, actually eat better, sleep better. Uh, get into a good routine, a healthy routine. Yeah, yeah. I know it's everybody's trying everything, and I think a lot of people getting Zoom called out, you know, and, and, and walking outside is, is actually good, uh, and, and people can do it safely. Um, Brittany, have well, you, vitamin D makes you feel good. So, Brittany, have you ever felt anxiety this level, and how have you been performing some type of self-care to deal with it? Honestly, no, I haven't experienced this level because I, I get sick, I go to my doctor. You know, at this point, we're in a situation where, like, my doctor has these barriers up, like, hey, you really can't come here <laughs> unless you, you know, can meet these other quotas. So living in unprecedented times for myself and really being worried about, you know, my husband and my children and um, my son getting, like, adequate social interaction at eight years old, I know for me, all of this is exacerbated by the fact that I still work. Like, I still have a nine-to-five, and I still have to get on my computer, and I got to get my son on his computer. So in addition to worrying about being sick, um, worrying about making sure my sons don't fall behind in school, and then also worrying about making sure that I meet my professional obligations, I think it's so complex because so many other areas of my life have been impacted by the virus indirectly. And it's a lot, Brittany. It's a lot. And so, Dr. Jill, I mean, tr- you mentioned uh, in previous stories that trauma could take time to hit you and that you think that people will be dealing with the reper- repercussions of this um, for quite some time. Could you talk about that a bit? Yeah, I think that uh, right now um, emergency physicians are in high gear. Uh, they're just incredibly vigilant and alert and doing what they need to do uh, to take care of the sickest people that walk in through the door. So many times people are just focused on that, and over time the cumulative effects of that can be pretty significant um, that result in, you know, burnout and mental health issues among healthcare providers. And I think some people have not yet given themselves the chance to sit back and reflect and to do the kinds of things that Dr. Steve mentioned because, uh, you know, their work burden right now is so intense and so high, and, and I think that kind of thing can uh, kind of simmer along for a while, and then all of a sudden you wake up one day and realize, you know, your your incredible exposure to death and suffering has taken a very large toll on your humanity and your ability to be a caregiver. So I am worried about the healthcare workforce of the future. I don't want to just suggest this is doctors or emergency doctors. This is nurses. This is, you know, many people that work in hospitals, uh, environmental service workers, uh, cafeteria workers, people in other sectors like police and firefighters and paramedics. And, you know, we have to be inclusive when we talk about people that are essential workers that are doing this kind of thing. So I am worried about this workforce that's, uh, you know, it, it genuinely helping others, but it is important for them to be tuned into their own um, mental health and self-awareness in order, because we may be fighting this for a very long time to come. You teach people in emergency medicine. Any advice to this, these people on the front lines, uh, essential workers, on how to, to, to cope? I think trying to identify one or two or three support people that you feel close to, that you can let your guard down and talk about what was really profound that you experienced, what you're worried about, um, you know, trade off helping each other in some way. 
Uh, and then doing those kinds of healthy things, trying to get some separation when you go home from your workplace, trying to get out there and take walks and engage in something that's recreational and not just focus and obsess about work or what happened on your last shift. I think it's important to get some separation. I, I don't know that those things are going to work for everybody, but I think it's really important that people try. Isan, I mean, do you think this uptick and desire for mental health help will continue? I do. I believe that after this situation is beyond us, it's going to be a lot of PTSD. I hope that I'm wrong, but I can't imagine that the amount of loss that's going to be experienced and a lot of the domestic violence and all the other types of things that have come out of this aren't going to leave people with scars. But I do believe that the conversation about mental health is becoming more normal, and in, in particular in groups of people who wouldn't talk about it before. So I think that they'll now realize, like, I can actually go out and seek help. I can be honest with myself. I can measure where I'm at and where I would like to be and see whatever steps I have to do to get there. But I do think mental health is going to be at the forefront of all discussions for society going forward. And tell us a little bit about your story, because you are driven to do this work. I lost a brother to suicide in 2007, and it, that initially started my passion to go out and talk to other people, started doing concerts at Love Park and library meetings for suicide prevention. But I also have faced my own plans of suicide in the past. And to be honest with where I was, helped me to be able to communicate with people when they're having symptoms or signs or going through trying to find the roots of what's going on in people's lives and not just say you have mental problems. Maybe someone's going through a heartbreak. Maybe someone's going through just a change in life that they're struggling with the transition of. So we've been able to, my friends and I, who formed the foundation, We've been able to use our own experiences to try to reach the people who may be in similar shoes. Yeah. And COVID-19 kind of opens the door. We did another store uh, show on this issue uh, that that it opens the door just because isolation, your routine is knocked out. There's a lot of things that trigger folks during this pandemic, have been triggering folks. I think it's actually positive. Some of the things that come out of this, we get a chance to talk to people. There's a lot more communication going on than ever before. You, you can't really just be on your phone all the time like we used to be out in public. You're now on Zoom calls and talking to people I haven't talked to in a long period of time. It's just connected us more, actually, in a lot of ways. Because this is Flashpoint, we do need to wrap this up. And it's Mental Health Awareness Month. Will this pandemic do some good in the area of mental health? Why or why not? Definitely. Uh, look, everybody can reach out and seek some professional help for some guidance. And uh, it's important to desensitize from all of this mess that we're in. And I do have a lot of information on my website at www.quititnow.com. For me, I try to think of the positive that when my eight-year-old son looks back at this 15 to 20 years from now, when this is in a history book, he's going to remember three to four months of cooking with me and spending a lot of time on our learning a computer with me and being present for my Zoom calls. So for me, that gives me a little excitement. That's all I have right now. There are some very uplifting moments that we're seeing around human connection and around people also seeing... Um, as I mentioned before, all different types of essential workers as heroes. There's so much respect and so much love being shown in that direction. And I think we all could learn to appreciate each other a little bit more in terms of what we do and contribute to society. So I do think there are some great positives that we can draw on. Absolutely wonderful. Final word, Isan Hines. Yeah, I believe that we come out of this with more awareness of what's essential for our survival, that we come out of this realizing food and water 
means a lot more than driving a, a luxury car or having a huge bank account because our health is very important. And also the resources that I want to provide are my website, www. MBKcares.com. Thank you so much to Dr. Steven Rosenberg, to Dr. Jill Barron, to Brittany Bronson, and to Eson Hines for coming on Flashpoint and talking about this important issue in the news. Thank you, Thank Carrie. you so much. Next up, he's representing the families of victims in two high-profiled racially charged cases. They were trying to sweep it under the rug, like in Trayvon Martin, when weeks went by, they didn't arrest. Civil rights attorney Ben Crump explains why knowledge and support from folks in this region helps the case. We'll be right back. Hey, Flashpoint family, if you like what you hear... Why don't you stick around and take a listen to some of our past episodes or our Flashpoint extras. One example is our exclusive interview with the one and only DJ Jazzy Jeff. He contracted COVID-19. He had some dark moments, but he survived. Take a listen to his journey. Another example is our past newsmaker of the week, Andrew Wyatt. He's spokesman for actor and comedian Bill Cosby. He explains why they're petitioning the governor to hopefully get the cause out of jail early. All of this and more please subscribe to the podcast and rate and review now back to the show Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. The newsmakers of the week are the racially charged killings of Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor. Arbery was gunned down by two white men on February 23rd while jogging in his Glen County, Georgia neighborhood. Prosecutors declined to file charges until a smoking gun video of the shooting was leaked. Taylor was shot when Louisville police entered her home and opened fire in an attempt to execute a warrant of a man already in custody. With me to discuss the cases, it's attorney for the families, Ben Crump. Welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Chair, for having me, and I'm very enthusiastic about the opportunity to talk to you. First of all, how are you doing? I know it's very busy right now, but we're dealing with a pandemic. How are you, how are you doing? I'm doing good. My family is safe and sound. I've been home for about eight weeks in a row now, more than I've been home in a decade. So my little seven-year-old daughter is very happy. The big case that everybody is talking about is the Ahmad Arbery case. Uh, we... Footage came out a few days ago, shocking footage. How did you get involved with this case? Um, and, and we'll kind of leave from there. Certainly. His family called my office to ask me to help them get the killers brought to justice. And I want to say for the record, you know, it wasn't that the police saw the video that made them finally arrest this murderous duo, this father and son who executed Ahmad Aubrey in broad daylight, it was we the people, when we saw the video, it enraged us. And that rage then turned into an outcry for justice. And it was we the people who made them arrest this murderous father and son duo because we saw that lynching that occurred in 2020. And when we saw it, we couldn't unsee it. And so it is the people who made this happen. So thank you to all the supporters, all the people of goodwill who called, signed petitions, and protested for justice for Ahmaud Aubrey. Yeah, and so what was happening during those 74 days? He was shot and killed at one point, and what took so long? Cherry, it was like... Um, they always do. They were trying to sweep it under the rug. Like in Trayvon Martin, when weeks went by, they didn't arrest. 
and until there was a great public outcry. It's the same situation here with Ahmaud Aubrey because remember the police saw the video on day one and either it was because of their incompetence or it was intentional because Gregory McMichaels had been a former police officer and been a detective with the DA's office for about 30 years that they let the killers go home and sleep in their bed at night in peace, even though there was probable cause all over that videotape to arrest these murderers. I mean, their allegation that this was a burglary, if you were just a, a, a basic police officer, you didn't have to be a highly competent police officer. You could be Barney Five, and you could have said, well, hold on, if he's a burglarer, we should see burglarer tools, we should see a burglar's bag. We should see a burglar's mask. We should see some evidence of a burglary, but there was none. And they still let them go, took their words of the killer as the gospel, while this young man went to the morgue, they went home to sleep in their beds. And part of what you do is sort of look at these laws, these uh, laws meant to protect people. These guys um, and the McMichaels, they said that they were trying to effect a citizen arrest here that they were trying to, um, that they thought that they had some type of cause to stop him. And could you talk about that citizen arrest law as a, that they're using as a shield here? Yeah, Cherius Asinine. They have on the books in Georgia that if you observe the commission of a crime, that you as a citizen can detain an individual uh, until I guess the police gets there. Even though you have no training in de-escalation, you not have no training in conflict uh, resolution, they are saying that you as the citizen have the power to come and police somebody if you observe, you believe you observe the crime. And it's such a subjective law. And it's certainly one of those laws when you think about it, you don't see black people going out trying to tell white people, I'm going to invoke my right as a citizen of the state of Georgia to conduct a citizen's arrest on you. It's really only these white people who feel they have a right to impose their will and make black people submit to their will that you see them talking about this citizen's arrest. So it's just asinine. And when you look at, listen to the 911 tape, Cherry, you hear that when the 911 operator asked them, well, what is he doing? What crime does is he committing? They don't say anything. She asked twice. Yeah. And that's very telling what they don't say because they didn't see him committing any crime. And, and I want to go to the video. How was this video the trigger? What you said it was the people was the, the trigger. This video went public. Right. But why wasn't it the video enough without the people coming in? You know, I, I think it was once the video was leaked by their former lawyer that everybody got to see it. It's sad that that video wasn't enough to uh, provoke the police to do the right thing and arrest these murderers. Because when you think about black people every day, we get arrested on far less probable cause than an actual video of us showing a person getting killed with a shotgun. Our ballistics expert tells us that that's one of the most powerful weapons you could ever use to kill a person. I mean, not to be too graphic, but you talk about it goes in 
uh, when you shoot a shotgun, several projectiles come out the barrel. When you shoot a gun, only one projectile come out, and they say the entrance wound is like a half a dollar. It's as big as a half a dollar when it enters you, and then it expands. And then when it exits your body, because gunshot wounds exit the body, gun wounds, they stay inside the body, but a gunshot wound is going to exit. And they say when it exits the body, it could be as large as a teacup saucer. That's how big it is. And so when we see that video of a man taking those few steps before he fall, and we see that blood uh, expanding in a circle on his back, that's exactly what our ballistics expert is talking about, the exit wound. Yeah. And the brutality of it was quite shocking. And, and, and so there's differences in what they're being charged with. Um, Georgia is very different from Pennsylvania. And so try to explain how they're able to separate. I mean, because it seems like this was them working together. Yeah. Uh, Georgia doesn't have a hate crime law. Unfortunately, it's one of four states that don't have it. The hope is when the Senate convenes on June 26th, that there would be a lot of momentum for the Ahmad Aubrey law that would be a hate crime law finally in the state of Georgia. Um, but they are charged with murder and they're charged with uh, aggravated assault. And I think the elements are all there. Currently in the Ahmad case, the DOJ is involved, number one. And there is an African-American woman prosecutor uh, that has been appointed as lead prosecutor to the case. Yes, and her name is Joyette Holmes. She is the DA for Cobb County, which is in Atlanta, Georgia. And we believe if she zealously prosecutes this case, the evidence is clearly there to get a conviction. We want to look at a change of venue. We don't trust that Brunswick, Georgia area. Too many people have had interactions with them at Michael's father and son duo. And so we just want Ahmad Aubrey to get the equal justice that he or any American would deserve. So now you feel justice is more likely to happen now. I'm cautiously optimistic, Sherry. I'm cautiously optimistic. This is still America. Our precedence is for 400 years. White people have killed black people and never been held accountable. So yeah. I'm cautiously optimistic by a lot of the recent high-profile cases that I've handled, my law firm has handled, seeing those convictions. Whether it's Corey Jones in Palm Beach, Florida, that is uh, the church drummer who was broke down on the side of the road, and the police officer in plain clothes, a jean, a T-shirt, baseball cap, and a cargo band pulls up on him at 3 in the morning and shoots and kills him. It's the case that was featured in the Super Bowl ad. But by the grace of God, he was on his cell phone talking to the tow truck company, and they recorded everything. And so we could prove that he was lying. And so an all-white jury in that case convicted that police officer and sent him to prison for 25 years. It was the first time in the state of Florida that a police officer had been convicted of killing a black person in 30 years. Think about that. All the black people they killed in those 30 years, that was the first time Florida has 14 million people. You can only imagine how many black people killed. And then also Marquise McLaughlin, in his case, you know, that's another white man trying to impose his will, take the law into his own hands over a, a, a alleged 
handicapped parking violation. He shot and killed Marquise in front of his three young children, his five-year-old son, his three-year-old daughter, and his one-year-old son. And it's such a hard video to watch because after he shoots Marquise, you see him stumble back into the convenience store, and his five-year-old son is literally reaching out for his daddy, and Marquise falls at his feet. Yeah. And that is the last time he sees his father alive. An all-white jury convicted him uh, and didn't buy his stand-your-ground argument and sent him away for 25 years. And we all know about Amber Geiger in yeah. Texas and where the jury rejected her argument for allegedly going in uh, the wrong <laughs> apartment and killing both of them. So in my, in my mind, this is progress because, uh, and we'll switch, we should talk about uh, Breonna Taylor because, but one thing I have to say, this is progress from your tra- from Trayvon Martin because Trayvon Martin, everybody looked at it as a loss because, you know, George Zimmerman did not go to jail uh, for that crime. But in a way, it sort of opened a door to now we're seeing finally, despite the struggle, progress has been made. Absolutely. And it's still heartbreaking that the prosecutor did not present a winning case when the evidence was so clear to many of us. But I do think Trayvon Martin was historic uh, and landmark because it really changed the way, uh, it changed the consciousness of America as it related to them killing our unarmed children. And the fact that I do think a lot of these cases reverts back to Trayvon Martin's case. Yeah. And so let's talk about uh, Breonna Taylor uh, in Kentucky. Uh, Tell us about this case. Yeah, a tragic case. Uh, Our firm has been retained to represent the family of Breonna Taylor, who on March 23rd was killed due to a botched execution of a search warrant by the Louisville Metropolitan Police Department. They uh, did not knock or announce anything. She's in sleep with her boyfriend at one o'clock in their apartment. There's a battering ram that the police use to bust in on their house. The boyfriend actually calls 911 to say they believe their, their home has been burglarized. He's a licensed gun owner. He has a permit. And so he gets his gun out to protect his home and his woman and his person. But yet when the police come through the door, he shoots a shot. And then the police from all directions just open fire. They shoot 20 to 30 shots. And Brianna, who is practically naked, is shot at least eight times. The funeral home director believes she was shot 10 times, said her body was mutilated. And the thing that is so outrageous is the person who was the subject of the search warrant was already in police custody. And so they killed this innocent sister. And for two months, they haven't given her family any answers. And so I am arguing and professing, if you ran for mod, you need to stand for Brie also because our black women lives matter. Yeah. And I got to ask you this. I mean, I understand she was a nurse, uh, soon to be nurse, 26 Mm -hmm. years old, beautiful young woman. Uh, killed by authorities in this case. How, how does it help when people in Pennsylvania are talking about this? I did my 223, you know, and you hear all the people doing the 223. What does that do for your case and for it, you? It is absolutely essential because they will sweep, as heinous as this execution was, 
of this sister, they will sweep it under the rug if they think nobody cares. So everybody has to be calling to the district attorney in Louisville, telling him they need to charge these officers, calling the police chief saying they need to fire these officers because if they would have just followed their policies and procedures and not been so renegade and reckless, they would have saw they had the person in custody and they wouldn't have killed the innocent woman who her mother says was just the light of their family. Her whole goal in life was helping people. She was, think about it, Cherry, she's helping people with the coronavirus. I mean, risking her life. And she doesn't get injured or die from the coronavirus. She gets killed from police brutality while she's sleeping in her bed in the sanctity of her own home. And that's why we got to say her name. Brianna Taylor. And as we wrap up, just tell me, what would justice in these two cases look like in your mind? The police are going to prison and the killers of Ahmad going to prison because I think until they're held accountable and their liberty is taken from them, they feel that their lives really didn't matter that much. And we can do it again and nothing will happen. And so that's why everybody in Pennsylvania got the tweet and hashtag uh, Brianna Taylor, because her life mattered just like Ahmad Albee's life mattered. Well, thank you so much, Benjamin Crump. I really appreciate your time and attention. Hey, thank you. Next up, he's found success in the classroom, on the court, and in the lab. I'm just doing something that I love, and it's starting to become a part of me. A Point Breeze team's focus that has led him to work on cancer research far beyond his years. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. Be sure to subscribe to the Flashpoint podcast by downloading the Radio.com app, Apple Podcast app, or other platforms. All you have to do is search Flashpoint. Now, we here at KW, we are all about community, and the Point Breeze team is accomplishing two major goals this year. First, he'll graduate from Milton Hershey School, and second, he's pursuing the fight against cancer. Here to tell us more about his focus is our Patriot Home Care change maker, Nathaniel Boyd. Nathaniel, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you for having me. One of the reasons why we were really excited to have you on the show is because you've been working to help fight cancer uh, as a research assistant. Tell us about your work. Yeah, I've been working like last three years with Dr. Lowe at the Penn State Hershey Medical Center. And we were working on um, triple negative breast cancer. I do different things and it's all like um, for our project and just trying to make ways to find out if we can make like just the cancer cells more sensitive to our treatments. Triple negative doesn't have many chemotherapies or anything that can really help. I can do things from making media which the cells grow in or I can like just you need something clean I'm there. It's just an experience and it's great to be there. What attracted you to the medical field? My self-awareness honestly because I feel like I'm really good with numbers and I'm really good with math and I'm really good with like problem solving and I just feel like I have tons of skills that put me in between engineering and put me in between the health science field. And I just wanted to find out if there's a way that I can um, combine them. And my thought process was biomedical engineering. That's what I aspire to be, a biomedical engineer at when everything is all said and done. Yeah. And um, you're in high school, but I, I saw a story about you and they said they don't even treat you like a high school intern. They treat you like you're a graduate student. How did you rise to a level where that's the, the type of trust you have with the folks you work with at the lab. I'm very, very grateful that they said that. 
it came from like just how the world is moving. The world is moving into like um, book oriented, like getting that diploma, and then it's moving to expertise oriented. And so throughout the last years, I've just been building my expertise. So I've still been a student. I've still been learning, but it's been in a more of an experience base. In my senior year, I was able to set up something where it was a paid position. Congratulations. Thank you. That's really cool. And I have to point out that triple negative breast cancer affects a lot of women of color. Um, Black women specifically uh, get this form of cancer quite often, unfortunately. Um, does that resonate with you uh, at all, that that's the type of research you're doing? I'm definitely aware, but it, it hasn't been a story that hit super close to home. It's been the stories in my community, the emails that I've been getting and the stops in the hallways and stops in the street, um, like just the thank yous and things like that. And so I feel like uh, all people are my people. At the end of the day, I'm doing... I'm doing something that's still worthwhile. And so you're originally, you're a student um, now for, I guess, a little while longer at Milton Hershey, but you're originally from South Philadelphia. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Tell me, what was it like growing up in South Philly? When I look back at it now, it was just so much fun, like so much. I would go out and just be with like friends and then even in school. It was enjoyable because I felt like that was my environment, that was my place. And with Philly, the type of love that we have for like our Philadelphians, um, we always know that we have each other back. We have people that we can call on and it's, I don't know, it's, it's a different type of like love for your neighbor. I just feel so loved in Philly. It was hard, uh, definitely, but every lesson that I learned was worthwhile and it's in my character traits now. I tell you, Philadelphia has that grit uh, that mm -hmm. makes you a really hard worker. And so you're, you're pretty busy because in addition to doing your work at the lab, you also on the basketball team and a student and taking college classes. How are you able to do all that? If I was to like um, just look at it from only my progression and, and only my achievements, like I would stop where I would at least go on cruise control. Because like, I, I finished my credits um, last semester, but I continue to progress because I'm just doing something that I love. And it's, it's starting to become um, a part of me. Like, if me getting up at 5 o'clock, me not going to sleep till late at night, like, like that was me. That was how I worked. Yeah. And I got to ask you, because your uh, brand or oh, the focus, right? Yeah. Yes. Where did you get that, that will represent you? I don't think I'll be where, I was, where I'm at without it. It's, it's focus, it's acronym, and it stands for fiercely overcoming and competing until successful. It's, it's something that was a part of me, and it just got me through everything and the struggles and the fire. And so I wanted to just share that with everyone else. And originally, it was just, I would post it. I would just be like, oh, yeah, this is me. Then people would love it and love the, the energy that it had behind it. I, that's all I'm about is having that impact and then being an inspiration for people. And like, if I can share any knowledge that I can, like I would do it because everything that I am, I'm just a, a fusion of all the knowledge that, I, that is around me. So Yeah. And it must take a lot of focus because I was looking uh, at your schedule and a lot of people can't sustain that level of focus for years and years. And you've been able to do that. And so kudos to you. And so what are your plans? Because you're about to graduate. Like my plans keep expanding and I plan on going like to the West Coast just to see more about what the world has to offer. Because in order to have a global impact, you need to know about the globe. I just got accepted from a couple of schools, just like crunching the numbers. And then I got accepted from a couple of schools over this side. I'm looking into opportunities abroad to like do some service and like just get some real experience and authentic experience. Being as though I have already a year um, under my belt. So what are they going to do for you guys for graduation? I think 
like they're gonna do one day online like for the parents and everybody that can watch the next day is have something in person with just the students and at least something where we can like get our diplomas and get all of our stuff um and how are you holding up with all of that happening i mean this was a big it's a big year for our seniors and this show uh, Flashpoint is all dedicated to the class of 2020. How do you feel about it? I feel like it, I didn't get a chance to see the end. I feel like I didn't get a chance to see like everything that I worked for. My tunnel vision at the end of the tunnel is always the goal. And so like I feel like something is legit. Like they just messed, like took up a whole step. Whereas like, I can't even make that step in order to get to the goal. It's going to challenge you to be optimistic, honestly. Uh, how can people follow you and ride the, the wave virtually? as you go on and you know hear about all of your uh, adventures as you head off into this brave new world after graduation nbiu underscore mission so i want to say thank you so much for coming on flashpoint and congratulations class of 2020 look out world because nathaniel boyd is coming good luck to you I appreciate it. we'll be right back are you disappointed in the timing of your home care paycheck? Or are you being paid at all? Call Patriot Home Care today and know that your paycheck will arrive on time and that you'll be well paid. As a leading home care provider in Pennsylvania, Patriot offers the most comprehensive benefits package in the state. You can qualify for free health care, 401k retirement benefits, paid sick time and vacations, and time and a half pay for holidays. Who doesn't like that, right? So you can call Patriot Home Care today at 877-535-5550. That's 877-535-5550. Again, it's 877-535-5550. Flashpoint is produced by Cherry Gregg and associate producer Ariane Fulcher. Thanks for listening. That's it for the Flashpoint podcast. I hope you enjoyed this exclusive content. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. You can also follow me at Cherry Gregg. If there's an issue that makes you hot under the collar, let us know. And we'll walk you through the flames. As 19th century Lebanese American writer and poet Khalil Gibran once said, our anxiety does not come from thinking about the future, but from wanting to control it. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week. Thanks for listening. <laughs>